Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth Ides of Macro. And today we're going to be looking at market structure, volatility, inflation, the Federal Reserve, with my guest today, which is Chem Kasson, and he is of Kai Volatility Advisors, and I think there's a clue in the name there about some of the topics that we're going to be touching on. Thanks for joining us, uh, Chem. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. And could you just give, just very quickly, very briefly, um, a little bit of background, because some of the viewers will have seen you before, many others won't, just where you sort of come from, although you've got a, quite a, a varied view on the world, but where there's sort of, you know, your volatility strategies, the, the core of your business, where they sort of really emanated from. Yeah, so I, uh, I've been in uh, volatility uh, markets for 24 years, uh, started out in the business on the trading floor uh, in Chicago. Um, and eventually built one of the biggest market-making operations in the equity vol space. We were at our peak uh, more than 13% of the volume of the S&P 500 options. So very much uh, a market microstructure guy. Um, that having been said, uh, you know, I grew up on the border of cultures, uh, you know, uh, Turkey, England, U.S., uh, all over. And I've always been a macro, uh, you know, macro curious. And as I, you know, built my small family office and ended up eventually launching my funds, definitely have done top down quite a bit. So the top down and bottoms up have really met. And we really kind of look at markets from bigger structural perspectives, as well as kind of underlying market microstructure. So is that some of the, the sort of pioneer type stuff that, that we saw in the, I guess, the early mid 90s, maybe mid to late 90s. Because remember, I, I used to work in, well, I started off at um, SBC Warburg in the mid 90s. And they had, you know, some of the guys from Chicago. And then at Goldman Sachs, with people like Hull. I guess you're a bit, bit like those sorts of guys where you're looking at the whole lot. Yeah, the, the Hull guys I traded against for quite some time. And once Goldman uh, purchased Hull, uh, you know, we, we were eventually, you know, Hull and Goldman kind of disappeared out of the world and we became one of the bigger ones. So def directly uh, working. Uh, uh, you know, in, in concert against uh, those those types of uh, entities. And, and again, the markets changed a lot from the late 90s when I started, <laughs> yep. as you might imagine. And uh, yep. and I think as we'll get into here, you know, there were no options involved in the 1970s. So we were kind of uh, no. in a very different uh, market and world. And, and, and even though there's some things that look the same, in some ways, it'll be very different. Uh, yeah, I used to work with Sandy Rattery, who's involved in the sort of formation of, of some of the VIX concepts um, a long, long time ago. So, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of, well, in some ways, you know, that's, that's the crux of it. But I'd love to just get briefly first your, your thoughts, because for the last sort of few weeks, you've been looking at this kind of rarefied structure, as it were, in the market where we've seen the market continuing to levitate. Uh, we've been seeing it driven by just a couple of stocks, obviously a few more than that. And we've been seeing some instances where, as we've been going up, Volatility has been going up, at least implied volatility in certain parts of those fixed structures, fixed strikes. Could you just explain maybe in layman's terms, what are the nascent points of this view? Because obviously it's quite some quite complex ideas in there. If you can make it plain vanilla for us. Yeah. So I think the important place to start is that the majority of the world thinks of assets as the central and only important piece of, of, of price and, and uh, what's going on underneath the market indexes. Futures derivatives are all considered secondary and a reflection of the underlying. 
And that could not be further from the truth uh, in, in today's modern day. That may have been how it started, but the reality is that structured products, options, derivatives, um, all kinds of flows uh, are, are tied to the index itself. And now there's enough volume and enough uh, of directional and, and, and structural pressure that happens there that it is as much the, the tail as the dog. Um, and uh, you could very much argue there's more structural effects going on there than actually on the underlying stocks nowadays. So really taking a, a, a centric view of, of the S&P and that complex and all the, the pieces that feed into that is, is a critical part of understanding what's actually happening in markets, much more than understanding, the, I would say, macro flows to the single or as much uh, macro flows that are going on on the single names and broad uh, ec ec economy these days. So basically, it's sort of, uh, I wouldn't say active management is dead, but what we're saying is it's less about kind of PEs and it's much more about the flows. It's much more about the liquidity and some of these, you know, I always call them rules-based funds, but the rules-based funds may use things like momentum, volatility levels as their major inputs. These are the guys who are really driving the market. I think in, in the U.S. now, active has fallen to something like 40% of AUM in the, in the sort of equity market and these rules-based stroke passives are now sort of 60%. So that's really where we've got to go. And they don't do surveys or sentiment. Yeah, uh, to your point, there's, there's quantitative strategies that are operating on the index level or single stock level even. But, um, but importantly, there's other things that are just simple market structure that are a function of broad structural flows. Um, again, we can get into structured products. There's massive increase in structured products right now that are affecting market structure that are uh, broadly have nothing to do with whether or not uh, the Fed is raising rates or lowering rates, whether a single stock uh, has a positive idiosyncratic outcome or not, or whether just broad liquidity is strong or not. And, and those types of flows can have massive effects. And that, that's exactly what we're seeing in this breadth breakdown and record dispersion that we're seeing underneath the market. Um, it, is, it is driving it at its core. And I'm happy to kind of dive into how that works. But but there's um, there, there's major structural issues there. Yeah, I mean, I think you know most people are aware of breadth, you know, declining and just a few big, big so AI stocks leading the way. But could you explain that dispersion a little bit more? Because that's a word that we often hear, but what does it actually mean? Yeah, so breadth and dispersion are kind of one and the same in a sense. Um, it's essentially, you know, you take the S&P 500 and then what's going on with correlation underneath the hood of the constituents, right? Uh, in theory, you know, uh, breadth, and when people think about breadth, they think that the actual underlying stocks moving in different directions or not participating in as much may be a, a poor sign for the broad market. Why? Why is that? Um, why? Because generally when that happens, it's a function of some underlying structural elements in the market, not allowing the market to go down and forcing some of this, uh, this movement away from the core body of, of, of the of the market. Uh, but how does that work? Why does that happen? Let me illustrate what's happening right now and let me tie it into kind of what we've seen uh, in recent history as well. Right now, there's a significant amount of vol selling that dealers, the ones who are uh, uh, collecting and warehousing the risk, be it the banks, the market makers, who, who have you, um, uh, they are actually taking on implied volatility. They are, uh, they're, they're broad sellers. Where is the selling coming from? Some of it is just speculators, uh, entities that have been selling vol. Why? Because it's been profitable, because it's been incredibly profitable the last couple of years. But also because there are bigger structural reasons. People are piling into um, uh, structured products because interest rates are higher, particularly short duration. And you can structure products with five and a quarter percent T-bill yields, uh, you know, with short duration and then 
layer on top of that with the collateral, structured options involve positions that look very desirable. When you can yield 9 10% as long as the market stays within 20 25% up or down for the year, um, and, and really in a, in a world where people don't feel too confident about the forward outlook for stocks, uh, you have a risk-adjusted kind of looks pretty pretty favorable. And so people are piling into these types of structures. Um, and vol has been higher as well. So these, these, these structured products have been yielding more. But all of them tend to be selling vol, right? And so when they issue structured product, banks take on significant amounts of, of vol, implied volatility. That has to be off laid off on the market. Uh, market makers then also become long vol. Why does that matter? Well, uh, unlike tornado insurance, where if uh, you know buying tornado insurance doesn't affect whether or not a tornado comes through town or not, uh, you know, actual the underlying uh, if somebody's long insurance, uh, like a bank or a market maker, they are forced to hedge that. So if the market goes down and they're long vol, they buy the market. The market goes up, they sell the market. This has a reflexive dampening effect on realized volatility, and has the effect of pinning the market. 2017, by most measures, a very innocuous year. Um, but it was actually a historic year. Why? In 125 years of history, we had the lowest realized volatility by more than 30%. A complete outlier to many, many years, uh, you know, over a century of, of market history. Not surprisingly, though, we also had the lowest correlations of underlying constituents of the index by more than 25%. Why are those two things connected? Because if vol supply, which we had dramatic amounts of um, in the uh, in the S&P 500, pin the index, right? And that's the tail. That's ultimately pinning the whole index. But you still have within one and a half to two standard deviation, uh, you know, volatility within historic norms of idiosyncratic single names. There's a there's a, a new CEO, a, a, you know, company beats earnings, uh, companies going bankrupt. Those stocks still move, but if the index is pinned by arbitrage constraints, stocks have to move the other way, and that leads structurally to correlation breakdowns, and that leads to very profitable dispersion, meaning trading the index versus its single constituents. Guess what? That was historic until now. We're now seeing it again. And the reasons we're starting to see it are because the derivatives and vol market has become significantly bigger and significantly more important to market structure. And now the indexes are often uh, not just the tail. They are the dog. And the single names are simply the tail um, of the major index. So that's hopefully kind of an overview. But in how, how critical these volatility uh, trades and, and volatility supply is to the market. And just there's a couple of things you were talking about there, and it'd be lovely to sort of not so much clear them up, but provide a bit of color because, you know, back in 2017, I remember it's just like death by a thousand cuts. I actually left the market that year. It was so dull. And again, what we see today is, you know, when people see the VIX at 13 and a half, 14, they go, well, that's low. And you're talking about high vol. Could you explain this difference between a VIX, a spot VIX, a non-tradable spot VIX at 13 and a half versus what you might actually see? through term structure, either through the longer dates or medium to longer dates, and also at higher strikes and lower strikes. And so why sometimes the VIX itself, spot VIX, which we all look at, can be quite misleading. Yeah. So when people um, think about volatility, they think of it as because they're trained to think about uh, assets, uh, you know, something you buy or that you sell. And so in order to kind of fit that model, they 
created something called the VIX, which was a, a measure of uh, you, you can buy or sell all. But the reality is that market structure doesn't work that way. Uh, the market is a, a distribution of outcomes. And when they, when they price options, each option is priced on a different implied volatility. Um, so if you go down, if the market slides down, uh, there's naturally a higher implied volatility that it's, it's sliding to on the distribution. And if it goes up in the into equity world, there's a lower implied volatility that it slides to. That is what we call fixed strike because the implied vol is tied to the fixed actual strike in the options limb. Now, nobody purported that the VIX was a measure of, of fixed strike vol. It was meant to be a floating vol. So it's just looking at at the money average, call it implied volatility and saying, okay, this is the market's expectations. But painting that as a fear index or a measure of, oh, uh, implied volatility is going up or down is incorrect because you often have a situation where the market might be down 3% or 2% over some period and you've naturally slid to a higher implied vol. Yes, the VIX is going to print higher, but it may be printing significantly lower actually than where the implied vol of those lower strikes were. And in actual terms of fear, despite the VIX going up, the reality is underneath the hood, it's actually vol is getting compressed on a fixed strike basis. And the supply demand dynamics are such that people are liquidating vol. So it is not a situation of fear. It's actually a situation of the exact opposite in that, under those circumstances. So the true fear index would be a measure of supply and demand for uh, implied volatility, which is a measure of fixed strike vol. Um, so two things that are very different, where the market is pricing relative to where the VIX is pricing are very different things. And, what, and one of the things you were sort of kind of alluding to there is, is the idea of skew that normally a 10% out of the money strike to the downside is normally a lot higher vol than the at the money. So if the market sells off down to that 10% out of the money strike, but actually the vol is almost the same when it should have been a lot, lot higher, it actually means that people weren't that bothered about the sell-off. Yeah. Uh, that that's exactly what happened last yeah. year, right? In 2022, yeah. there was massive vol liquidation. Vol got crushed. Uh, there was a run for the exits because people were hedged broadly, and we can get into the kind of the reasons or whatever, but people saw the VIX, and the VIX kind of slightly kind of went sideways to ground up. But given the 25% decline that we saw in markets last year, it was actually a dramatic vol uh, decrease that happened okay. underneath the hood. I think I said that it was one of the best behaved bear markets I'd ever seen because, you know, everyone, but well, not everyone saw inflation coming, but because a lot of the active managers did see it coming and they got the hedges on and then the market sold off. They liquidated the hedges, which was selling vol. And I think one, the one thing that I don't you know what was interesting, I thought throughout that year was how volatility, volatility, VVIX really went down very, very quickly throughout that, that year. Um, so again, it just, you know, it, it didn't have that fear factor. It was just very well behaved because a lot of the, a lot of the asset managers nailed the move, but probably didn't actually make that much money on it because they probably monetized puts, which the Delta worked for them, but the volatility didn't. And they probably went, eh, not that great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is that uh, not only was it well telegraphed, but everybody in Feb, March of 2020 that was selling vol was out of business, right? And anybody that was buying vol uh, made out like a bandit. So you had uh, a bunch of, uh, and this happens throughout history. I could walk you through the history. It's like a sign curve, right? Uh, all the people uh, that, you know, top of mind is, well, if you're going to, if you're going to get a vol of it, you, uh, the market's going to decline, you better have puts because puts are what, you know, give you that convexity. 
And meanwhile, the market continues to go up. People don't want to sell their winners. They don't want to have a tax event A, but B, they also want that convexity in uh, GameStop and whatever tech name that was going you know, wild. So um, you, what you had was a situation where markets were 110 to 120% levered uh, on the stock side and, and hedged with an out-of-the-money put. Uh, guess what? Uh, you know, the pain trade is what won out, which is what usually happens um, you know, as a function of supply and demand and reflexivity. So what I'd love to get onto here is sort of two or three things, which are, the first one is, what do you see as the potential outcomes? Because obviously, I don't want to say, I don't want you to say what is going to happen, but, you know, is this going to be potentially like beginning of 2018, where we had Volmageddon and a volatility event? Or do you see something else coming out of that? So firstly, what do you think is the possible Minsky moment, it's probably not the right word, but the possible um, fun scenario, let's say, depending on how you view markets? Yeah, so um, there's kind of two pressures, right? There's the macro pressure, which is the one most people think about, right? Um, and it's important. I'm not diminishing the importance of it at all, right? There can always be something that comes from uh, a another structural pressure um, that can eventually affect market microstructure, right, and kind of destabilize it. But the same can be true for the market microstructure itself, destabilizing and then, you know, untethering and allowing kind of the the underlying macro risk to kind of unravel as well and and so both sides matter and either one can play and usually it's a combination of the two i'll give you a couple of examples right um uh, 1997 right we had uh we had uh, the asian flu um which uh which eventually did what uh asian flu eventually blew out long-term capital management which led to vol decompression which then kind of untethered the market for a bit, right? Um, you know, that would be a great example of macro leading market microstructure. Um, but I can give you others, right? We can go to, uh, you know, uh, February 2018, right? The, the market microstructure itself and the, and the excesses of 2017, which we were just talking about, and all of the, the overselling uh, of vol. And, and, and yes, it was self-fulfilling compressing, but eventually it led to its own undoing naturally, which led to, you know, volpocalypse and, and, and a structural and what, issue. And I'd love to know, you know, as, as you talk through these, because, you know, I always think of 97, 98, sort of Asia crisis, LTCM. 2000, at the end of 2018, um, the Fed, et cetera. Beginning of 2018, I think is always, is the one which stands out where, um, it wasn't an exogenous shock or it wasn't the Fed misstep. It was actually the market sort of killed itself. The volatility market brought the market to its knees. Do you think we are currently in an environment where the market itself will bring itself to its knees? A bit like that beginning of 2018, or do you think it needs another exogenous shock like a 2020 or just another Fed misstep? I'm going to walk through this just quickly so people kind of see what happens. This is just going back to August 2015 and walking you through recent history and how how it matters so much what that tinderbox of volatility is doing. And that's really how you think about it, right? There's this explosive kind of market structure thing underneath the hood. Now, usually it doesn't undo itself completely on its own, right? Um, but it has the potential to. August 15, yuan devaluation, right? Uh, markets had not had a any uh, major kind of, uh, and no decline greater than uh, 8% up until that point, going back to 09. So we're talking, you know, six years, actually 2011, we had a brief one, but but for the most part, like very little volatility, yuan devaluation, massive over, you know, uh, un, uh, sell vol, vol, vol selling, because no, you know, vol selling had been so profitable. There's a lot of risk underneath the hood. And we had a one day significant move, 
vol markets went black. We had a four to five X, um, you know, beta to vol relative to the underlying, right? Um, well, what happened? All the short vol got pushed out. All the people who were long vol had a massive killing. Uh, as we rallied back from what was the greatest decline that we had had in at least uh, four years at that point, uh, we, we had a full rally back and vol compressed all the way back down. Well, at that point, uh, high yield starts blowing out. Oil goes to 20. Uh, and all of a sudden we get to have, we begin to have a revisit to, to those, uh, to those lows, February, uh, 16. This time we had a historic vol compression, um, and, and, the uh, and skew goes flat and you have almost a, a, a less than one beta to, to vol move relative stocks, but it was a much bigger move. It was actually 12 and a half percent, the biggest move we had had since 09. So similar moves within six months of each other, but dramatically different outcomes, and why? Because everybody was hedging high yield with the vol. And as high yield started to blow out, all the people who were hedging on one side, what's the pain trade? The vol underperforms. All the supply of vol gets compressed. So we go through this. And then everybody at that point is like, I'm never doing vol again. It's not going to work. Sell vol. You know, every model says, look, the biggest decline since 09 and vol didn't work. Well, you have 17, which we just talked about. Uh, all of vol selling. Eventually, now we have a, a vol explosion again in February 18. Fast forward, Ocnovdis, now the opposite, right? So it's a it's a sine curve, right? Ocnovdis, uh, everybody's hedged with vol again because they just had volmageddon. And, and what happens? Vol doesn't work. Well, think about now where, where we ended up in Feb, March 2020, right? By then, I was vol selling in the market. It hadn't been working. Why would you own, uh, why would you own vol? Massive vol explosion again. Okay, guess what happened last year? Because everybody, top of mind, uh, and not just top of mind, but also, you know, by simple uh, arithmetic, all the sellers have been wiped out uh, and, and uh, aren't receiving money. And all the winners uh, who, who show their performance during the last decline uh, get more assets. And uh, and here we go. Uh, where are we now? Well, you know, we're about a, a year, nine months to a year removed from vol underperforming and everybody giving up on vol. Um, and that's where we're heading right now. So to answer your question, you know, where are we in positioning? Matt, we're in the part of the story where vol selling, if it gets vol selling, uh, it, it, it decreases and pins the market as we talked about, eventually leads to a point where there's too much short vol in the market, where it's an unbalanced market microstructure and is more likely to be uh, explosive when it happens. Um, and, and, you know, that's the critical takeaway. Much like we talked about how vol was very well hedged going into the last decline and the macro picture was was poor. So we're likely to see market down, vol down. And we talked about that before it happened. Uh, you know, the next move will, will be a decline with more volatility. And do you think that um, also underpinning this, it sort of seems that these, you know, we just talked about them briefly, these rules-based funds, which use things like volatility, volatility as an input, are also exacerbating this this move, which just keeps on going a bit further and a bit further, like 2017, where you get to that level of realized volatility, actual market volatility, where they're maxing out their equity allocation at a time when employment is still low, so 401ks are still coming into the market. So you get this, as you say, reflexive, and it, it probably means that when, when we think we're getting to a peak, it just goes out a little bit further because everything is going in the same direction right now in terms of that, you know, vol down, market bid, okay, vol might be higher in certain areas, but it just feels sort of it's helping itself together. How do you, I guess, do you think that's part of the problem? And then the second bit, which is probably more important for viewers is, how on earth do you prepare for something which may happen next month or may happen in Q4 or may even not even happen until, who knows, H1 of next year? How do you deal with that? <laughs> 
Yeah, so first question first here. Um, I would be careful just pointing to vol targeting or trend following or risk parity or all these other quantitative strategies as being uh, the only things at play here, right? They're much bigger. I mean, those are important. Don't get me wrong. But they're much bigger structural issues. Like just day forward, you have passive flows that are momentum factors. The bigger Apple gets, the more passive flows it gets, the more it begets upward motion. As time passes, vol decay, you have skew in the markets we've talked about, right? By definition, uh, you know, dealers are long put, uh, short, you know, uh, sorry, short put, long call, uh, whereas customers are long put, short call because they're hedging long exposure. That means that every day that goes forward that these positions decay, dealers, banks, um, you know, funds, uh, market makers all have to buy back. That's called charm, uh, you know, and as vol compresses, you have even more. And so compression of vol begets buying itself and passage of time begets structural buying in markets as well. This is market structure at work. It's not just rules-based kind of, uh, you know, strategies that are driving all this. That's part of it. But it really is just pure market microstructure. It has to, as time goes by, especially now yields are five and a quarter. Guess what? The market has to go up five and a quarter percent every year to eat up by arbitrage constraints, right? These, these things drive buying every day. And significantly, what people don't realize is that the whole market, the equity market in the U.S. is $40 trillion dollars. But the amount of flows that determine daily moves the market is closer to, to 50 billion, 50 billion. It's a marginal decimal. This is like venture capital, you know, with minimal float pricing the whole, uh, the whole uh, stock at a, at a much higher level because the majority of, of investment is passive and doesn't participate on a day-to-day basis. So there doesn't take much flows to ultimately drive markets. And underneath the market, there are structural flows driving this every day. So I, I think it's important to note, yes, those are the ones you're highlighting, which are the quantitative strategies do play a role, but there's bigger flows than that even that matter even more that just sit underneath the market and are structural to how the market moves on its own uh, day to day. How on earth do you prepare for that? Again, I've been in this market for 24 years. Um, I started in 98. In 98, it was very clear, uh, you know, into 99 that we were in a tech bubble. That wasn't like unknown information. The macro realities of that uh, were very clear to everybody. If you go look at the valuations, it's, you know, in retrospect, obviously, it was also, it's also very obvious. Um, That didn't stop the the, the NASDAQ from doubling in price from those levels uh, within nine months. The last nine months of the of the Nasdaq, it doubled a hundred percent returns um, in nine nine months before it declined by ninety three percent or whatever the the final decline was. Um, you were right to bet against uh, those you know uh, those valuations. The, the Fed was raising interest rates; these valuations were insane. Pretty clear that you were going to have a problem. But how did it end? It ended with the biggest, most you know abusive moves, uh, the most the most painful moves for shorts at the end. That's how markets work. You can't get a decline in markets until supply and demand gets to a point where you can uh, actually have, have it not be profitable for the majority of constituents. This is why the mantra that markets can stay uh, irrational longer than you can stay solvent exists. There are reflexive effects. People don't think about the reflexive effects. People think about the macro and what should be happening. Well, guess what? 
It's a reflexive machine. If, if there's bad news out there and the majority of people understand that there's bad news out there, guess what? They're going to be under uh, uh, invested to their benchmarks. They're going to be shorter relative to where they'd like to be. And that means there is pain. Uh, we usually associate pain with downside moves, but there's pain to not matching your benchmarks as you go up. And there is real fear and real forced buying. It is not because people want to buy at the end. It's because they have to buy at the end. That happens at the end of a rally before a major decline. It's almost always how it ends. And that market microstructure is a big part of how people should be thinking and investing because ultimately it is not just about macro. It is about macro in the context of positioning that ultimately leads you to the timing element that gets you um, kind of best suited um, for, for playing. When, when the positioning gets offsides and then pairs with a much worse macro uh, uh, picture, despite what is often a turning narrative that doesn't match reality, that is when the true opportunity tends to present itself. And so with that opportunity, do you think that it's a case of, you know, what, what can people do? Because one of the things people fear about in this sort of market, which just grinds, you know, 2017, a perfect example where everyone went, oh, volatility is low. Well, it was low, but it was probably expensive at some point. But do you want to buy, you know, should I buy a tail risk put? Oh, it's expired worthless. Well, I'll do it again. Oh, it's expired worthless. Five or six times you go, oh, I'm not sure I can do that again. How do you do a hedge to a market that's going up like it's going up in anticipation of it turning when we have no idea when it's going to turn? What, what should people, what can people do to prepare themselves for something which could, when it turns, be quite a vicious turn? Yeah, so if you look at uh, the most recent major declines as an example, and if you think about what I'm saying here in terms of the risks, um, historically, what's worked very well, uh, if, if you're not sure when it's going to happen, but want to be better hedged for it, is to start betting on the upside part of the volatility distribution. Um, because at the end, uh, these things tend to move extraordinarily fast to the upside, which generally is underpriced on the distribution, right? And generally, if people think also, oh, these markets are overvalued, the first thing is for people to sell calls or to to kind of, oh, I, this upside should be limited, and that leads to squeeze and supply-demand imbalance on the upside. Now, the beauty of buying calls is you don't just have to buy calls and not do anything against it. You can be short stock against your calls. So there, a true vol trade is to be long, a call, right? Uh, you know, in that and, and a hedge delta neutral. Now you have a volatility trade. So it's a delta neutral trade. So it's basically right. Okay, so you're basically buying buying vol and selling the delta against it, and then are you dynamically hedging your your delta? Well, uh, the key is now the the hedging is key to this this, this story, obviously. So and then, actually, uh, maybe you should just explain what dynamically hedging is because that might. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could trade every minute, you could trade every day, you could trade every month, you could have whatever interval that you want to hedge your delta back out, right? Because underlying uh, part of volatility is that you have gamma, right? Uh, if you have a delta, that delta changes. It may be a 10 delta call that you own. If you rally, it becomes at the money, it's now 50 delta, right? And so your hedge against that, your stock that you're hedging against it, uh, changes, it's dynamic. Uh, now, now, when do you re-hedge that delta is, is essentially what you're asking. And the, and the answer is, uh, you don't want to be hedging every every minute or or probably not every day, right? Uh, otherwise, you're kind of eliminating that convexity and that, that vol effect that we're talking about. Um, the key there is to hedge dynamically based on certain rules. And and those rules, uh, I, would, I would state, are uh, when you start to see 
kind of narrative change, when you start to see positioning change, when you start to see kind of speed and acceleration, when you're looking at technically at when momentum has kind of uh, things become overbought and certain breadth blows out, those are times to rehedge, right? Um, and, and those tend to be great opportunities to kind of benefit for uh, potential, um, you know, pullbacks. Um, and then uh, you can get into kind of your your uh, your vol for for much cheaper by hedging uh, more accurately and more more dynamically. Um, I would also add to that something that I talk so much about is understanding where the positioning is in terms of options expirations. Understanding how um, how the different positioning changes naturally as options expiration cycles happen, and what that might mean also to buy back in certain effects. So the more you understand uh, market you know market microstructure, uh, the better you have an edge you can have to to this rehedging and and um, dynamically. Uh, positioning involved, but but the cheapest vol in the distribution is the upside vol. First of all, so uh, on, on just a realized basis, something better to have. On top of that, into these end of market uh, moves, you tend to get more volatility to the upside, um, and, and so that's an added benefit. Uh, and, and now that we've hit kind of this really low vol in general, that some of that vol is just on a realized basis actually cheaper than underlying uh, realized volatility. So uh, there's a significant opportunity now at the end of these cycles to be to be hedged. Um, uh, you know, participate in upside um, in windows, but still uh, really be well hedged for if and when a decline happens. You know, obviously doing um, vol neutral or vol neutral and then, you know, sort of either unaggressively hedged position is obviously quite a, a professional market type thing. You know, it's the pros really do that or the experienced people. Is there a way that somebody who's just, let's say, you know, prefers that they like being long optionality, but they might not feel comfortable being short stock. Is it, is it a valid trade? Because it's not the same, but if let's say I have my portfolio of 100 shares, can I sell my 100 shares into cash and buy a call and get any of that potential? Or does it have to be a neutral trade? Well, I mean, what you're, it's all a matter of what your benchmark is, uh, right? Uh, you're, what you're doing there when you sell your stock and replace it with calls is hedging, doing a call buying a call and selling stock. It's the same trade. You're just doing it against a, a, a core long stock position. So you're maintaining your long beta. Um, if you want to just maintain your long beta, that is a, a great way to reduce risk. Yes. I, yes. I'm just like I'm promoting owning calls and selling stock. That's stock replacement, what you're saying. And, and that's a, that's the same exact trade. It's just you're maintaining your long exposure. The difference with that is you, you won't lose as much on a decline, right? So it's a, a less risky situation. But if the market goes down, you're still going to lose money. Whereas in the other context, uh, you may make less into a rally than if you just had those calls, which are convex. Um, uh, you know, but, but into a decline, you'll actually make money. And it's a much more balanced approach. Yeah. So I always think it, you know, it is for somebody who's just sitting there going, okay, we're getting to that point where it might go 10% um, higher, 20% higher. Maybe I should get a 105% six month call. It might cost me 6%. But if I'm in cash, I know I'm 94% protected. And I might yeah. get something back to my call because my call might, you know, might get a vol bit into it anyway, so that I actually don't lose 6%. I actually, when I should, I may be only lose 3%. So yes, stock replacement, uh, yeah. stock replacement is a, in my opinion, uh, at this point in the cycle, when you're talking out, you know, three month plus calls, right? Uh, maybe three, four, five, six month calls is a much better risk adjusted approach given where implied volatility is for those calls out of the money and relative to where markets are in macro 
uh, risks are. So uh, 100% stock replacement. Something, something for, for the, the um, you know, every man, as it were. Um, now, something we, we talked about very briefly, but um, I'd love to come back onto, which is you, know, you talked about how market structure is the thing that might actually cause the well to be rung and it all to fall over. But there's, there's two ways I look at that, which is if, let's say, that happened, um, and what we saw in 2018 at the beginning is we had an event which lasted for about six days. I think it was the 1st of Feb to the 6th of Feb. And it was about 10% and it was kind of then done. But it was a it was a market event more than it was a macroeconomic event. Do you think that the, the, the biggest danger here is that we might get a macroeconomic event that triggers the market event, i.e. You know, something like a Fed misstep? Where do you think... Do you think there is an exogenous shock? And what I mean by an exogenous shock is a non-market internals reason why the flick, the switch might get flicked to all this coming tumbling down. Yeah, if you uh, it, both matter, and, and if you ask me to point to one, it would be a function of, somewhat of, of time frames. Uh, I think the longer this goes on, to be clear, I think it becomes more about market microstructure because uh, it's kind of like stretching a rubber band. The more crowded the vol space gets, the longer it gets. You know, the more people are making money and selling vol and the less people are hedging, the bigger the reaction will be, similar to what we saw in 17 into 18. But if, if we're talking what's likely to unpit it in the next six months, I would say, you know, uh, we're getting to a point where the, the tinderbox is kind of more packed, but it's not, I don't think, ready to be the primary driver yet. Um, I think it's more likely to be led in that period by some exogenous, you know, some, some market macro effect. Now, to be clear, the other reason I think it'll probably be that uh, is... Uh, is is because we live in a much more dangerous world than uh, you know in terms of macro based on liquidity moving. We just had historic you know Fed tightening from zero to five and a quarter percent. That's that's not not important. Um, the rotations we're seeing globally and the deglobalization. We're starting to see a, a cold war between the two biggest economies in the world. We're seeing a a hot war in Russia and Ukraine. These are not things that people don't know. They're just we're kind of just willfully ignoring them at this point. Um, you know we have. Uh, major um, kind of uh, effects on the lag of this interest rate flowing through different parts of uh, real estate and the economy. Um, and not to mention cross, you know, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, yen dollar, or whether you're looking at the yuan and, and some of the issues there, the Hong Kong dollar uh, peg ha having some weakness, all kinds of things that we know historically that this is a bit of a macro uh, unbalanced un uh, situation. And eventually there's likely to be something that kind of um, under the hood, a Minsky moment to your point, uh, where kind of that fragility is is getting to a point where there's likely to be something kind of big that 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 kind of sets it off. That's a spark, uh, and and there's enough of the tinderbox packed. Right, I think the two combined, we're getting to a point where that's probably uh, the most likely way this plays out. Um, uh, but but again, if it goes long enough, the reflexive effects of all positioning, which are significant now, could pin all that macro as it has been now for some time. To a point where it eventually undoes itself spectacularly on its own, and then leads to the narrative and macro effects kind of un, being unfurled um, as the unpinning happens. Which I think, um, you know, if this the longer this goes, that's the more likely scenario there. And do you, do you think that you know what could be um, something that helps to ring the bell is that we've got this equity market going up, and as the equity market goes up, it seems that corporates hoard their um, their employees because they feel that you know. It's it's a financialized world, and and I would say that you know the more the market goes up, the more likely the Fed is going to raise rates again. Because well, why wouldn't they? If GDP is doing okay, if equities markets are going up, they spent the last ten years complaining that they were on the zero bound and couldn't get rates high enough. So that when we got a recession, they could cut them. Do you think that what we're seeing here, this market that 
is sort of driving itself higher is actually going to give the Fed more and more reason to defy the curve that thinks we'll have this pivot sometime in the next six months or whatever and just keep going and surprise people. So eventually the market goes, oh, actually, that does matter now. Interest rates have gone beyond where we thought for the third, fourth time this time. And actually, that does ring the bell and they can't get it back this time because maybe inflation is still a problem. Yeah, now we're talking macro structure, and this is so critical for people to understand, I think. Um, the reality is there, there are secular effects, effects to inflation, and there are cyclical effects, right? And we have been for 35, 40 years in a, in a uh, Fed-dominated uh, situation where, where monetary policy was completely in control. Why? Because we, because we had done so much monetary policy, we essentially drove a deflationary, secularly deflationary structure. Um, we, we were expanding globalization by sending money to corporate corporations and, and wealthy individuals. We're expanding technological development. Uh, you know, margins are going to record levels, which are beginning more money going to capital and, and, and to growth. Um, this cycle, right, um, could have gone on forever. We could just keep doing more monetary policy if it weren't for an issue that the Fed wasn't within the Fed's mandate, right? The Fed was forced to, to, uh, to, to do policy based on maximum employment and price stability, right? And the reality, when you create a deflationary environment, the price stability, the way to act against price stability is to just stimulate more, right, uh, against it. So every time we had a downturn in the market, the deflation, you know, was already in, in process. So all we needed was more and more monetary policy. Well, the, the problem to that is monetary policy. Nobody talks about this is secularly deflationary, uh, as I was mentioning. I, I use the analogy of sending money to planet Palo Alto. For 40 years, we've been sending money to corporations on another, another planet, right? The money's not entering demand in the economy because of globalization, because of technological development. It wasn't going to the people. It was going to, uh, to advancement and more, more production. We're going to supply. And all we were getting for our tens of trillions of dollars is better you know, Googles and, and Amazons and Teslas and Ubers, right? And all of that is deflationary. It's not inflationary. And that's why we had a structurally deflationary machine. Now, that could go on forever. Great. That sounds wonderful, right? Why don't we just do that forever? Well, there's a cost and that cost was inequality, right? So we maximized GDP, uh, but we did it by sending all the money to the top 1%. And the, and the bottom uh, essentially underperformed, you know, centuries of, of performance. And we went from Gini coefficients here in the U.S. from 0.35, which is a measure of distribution, to 0.47, right? So we had a massive move in inequality. Um, and that takes a while politically to get, uh, to, to, for, that, for a change to be demanded there. But um, what happens is the younger generations are labor. When you come out of high school, come out of college, you don't have savings. And the millennials uh, came out and they... You know, a lot of them are still uh, living in mom and dad's basement. There's that, they're at 40% of the wealth creation, 40% uh, of the household formation of baby boomers um, at this point in their life. And so that generation, which has been labor for 40 years now, um, essentially uh, is looking at one another and, and feels a loss of status and said, this isn't fair. They, they don't know why, but they say, the, you know, I, I can't buy a house. I can't, I can't leave mom and dad's basement. I can't, you know, the system is broken. It doesn't work for the average person. And that creates a political groundswell. And that's what's called populism. And we're seeing that globally started about a decade ago. And now, you know, COVID set it off, right? In the U.S., it led to the, uh, the creation of Trump, the creation of Bernie Sanders. The whole spectrum of politics moved left. 
And that populism is really under, and this is really important, is driving more and more fiscal spending. It's driving more and more um, uh, demand push economy as opposed to supply push, right? And, and a desire to reduce that inequality. If money starts going to the average person as opposed to corporations, which is what's happening, that populism is, is local. And ultimately that local populism means deglobalization because it's our jobs, not not global jobs on honor, not global profits that matter. We start maximizing to median income, not uh, not mean income. And that difference is a dramatic difference. It's a very inflationary, structurally, secularly inflationary outcome. And now the Fed is stuck. And this is market macro structure. Now the Fed is in a box. Now the Fed can't just stimulate whenever the, you know, the, cyclically there's a decline. Now they have to battle this stagflationary structural problem and we're trying to rebalance inequality. And that ultimately is the structural uh, dynamic you're talking about. This is no longer a two-dimensional game where every time we have a cyclical downturn or head into a recession, the Fed will just turn and pivot. And that's why the bond market's been now wrong for two years. Uh, we've seen it multiple times now. We All of the algos say, oh, when cyclical downturns happen, the Fed's going to pivot and they're going to pivot aggressively. And that's going to mean that, that, they, that, that yields come down. Well, guess what? If you're in a structurally and secularly inflationary period and, and they're trying to uh, battle that, um, they don't want to make the same mistakes that were made in 1972, uh, 71, 72 and 75, 76, where, where they're coming back in and coming uh, off of their, uh, their, their yield increases and pivoting and then leading to much bigger structural secular inflation uh, push coming out of recessions. So the Fed's in a box. Uh, and when that's the case, it also leads to more geopolitical strife. Uh, you know, there's more uh, currency war, more resource scarcity, more hot wars. We're in a, a time of, of, of less Fed dominance and less uh, economic U.S. power. Um, and that means, uh, you know, buckle up much more macro volatility um, on the horizon uh, and, and all the more reason for some kind of outlier event. I think, you know, it's something where I've thought that this this framework is because you hear the people who are massive deflationists and others who are massive inflationists. And I've, I've been saying for the last sort of year or so that actually it's that profoundly deflationary structure you were talking about that's leading to the fiscal response, which is profoundly inflationary in, in its burst, which is the response to, oh, my God, everyone might lose their jobs to AI is, well, let's give people some money in their back pockets. It's when you give the masses the money that you get the true form of inflation. But I guess... With with that now, do you think we're in this window? And this has been this sort of you know fueled by the structure you're talking about. But this window where CPI is dropping. Yes, we've got a little bit of stickiness in services, but it is dropping. Do you think the Fed will go? Okay, we don't need to do anything because we've been here where we've had tight employment and low inflation, and we can let things run. Or do, do you think they'll go? Oh my God, the equity market's doing well. The, the we're seeing a big move. Uh, or not seeing a big enough move in unemployment to offset this. So therefore, they actually have to keep going within straight hikes to make sure they don't get the repeat inflation coming through. We're at 3.8% unemployment in the U.S., near all-time records. The Fed just increased interest rates from zero to five and a quarter percent. What would be happening if they hadn't? Just try and think about that, right? If they weren't trying to cyclically... <laughs> Uh, you know, slow down the economy. Uh, and, and everybody's talking about, uh, you know, inflation coming down. Core inflation has been sticky at 5% for almost nine months. It hasn't moved. Um, and and uh, yes, commodities are coming down. You have 
uh, other other kind of um, you know food so food's been coming down off of again bad comparisons from a year ago because of COVID. But the realities actually are in structural inflation is still very very sticky. If you look underneath the hood, um, this isn't inflation coming down. Uh, the Fed can see it. We're, we're adding here in the U.S. Uh, 250 to 350 thousand jobs every month. Uh, this is what, again, the Fed going from zero to five and a quarter and doing QT. Um, so uh, I think the, the narrative that, uh, oh, oh, the Fed, uh, you know, has succeeded, uh, you know, and, and they can kind of stop. Uh, we're heading towards recession. Quite the contrary. The economy has been incredibly strong. Q1 GDP just got revised from 1.3% to 2. 2% GDP growth in real terms. That means the U.S. just grew in nominal terms 6.1%. Uh, what, what recession are people talking about? What, where, what are people, you know, and again, the Fed sees this. The Fed knows they're behind the curve. They're starting to reaccelerate. The, now this is, you know, what you're not hearing is this is transitory 2.0. Uh, you know, again, look at the bond market. The bond market tried to price in a recession. And guess what? Here we go again. We're about to break out on the 10-year. I mean, if you go look at a chart, tell me if that's anything that you want to short. I mean, tell me if that looks like even remotely like interesting to, to get out in front of. Um, the bond market has been wrong uh, many times, mostly in the last two years. Um, and everybody who's playing this deflationary cyclical game uh, is, is essentially playing uh, the game of the last 30 years uh, without uh, understanding what the inflationary dynamics are actually under the hood. Uh, this is a much bigger structural issue um, that is that is uh, lying underneath the market and is tied quite simply to labor, uh, quite quite simply to, to to the need to to politically rebalance. Uh, we're not we no longer here in the U.S. or globally have a right and a left. We have a left and slightly less left, um, and and both of them are pandering to the same populace. Which uh, which just simply want which is every four years by the way millennials become more and more uh, politically dominant and more and more uh, those people are going to get what they want and again at forty percent of the wealth creation and household formation baby boomers at this point the potential energy there is enormous for spending and the demand for spending do you, do you think the the Fed ultimately has to um, maybe not break, but cap the equity market because it's corporate America, which is having it off. Basically, they've been handing over higher prices. They've had these decent margins. We've seen surprisingly high margins when we all thought the recession was coming. And, and at the same time, yes, we've seen wages going up, but real wages haven't been as exciting as we'd like them to have been. They've, they've remained, um, you know, we've seen, I always call this, it's a tight, but not a strong labor market. Do you think they need someone to, do you think the Fed needs to actually go, you know, we've got to slap these corporates, the C-suite effectively, and break this, this financialization so that ultimately they stop handing over these higher prices and keeping wages relatively low compared to, you know, where we might think they should be given where inflation is? Yeah, by any other name, it's it's uh, it, ha it ends with with wealth redistribution, right? And that can be uh, breaking up uh, conglomerates and making or, or having price controls, right? This is the great irony of fiscal stimulus: is is you you do this fiscal stimulus, you give money to the people, which leads to inflation, which is a flat tax, right? And that flat tax ultimately hurts the poor. So the, the, the first starts with actual fiscal payments and eventually goes to another form of fiscal. We won't call it fiscal, but it's price controls or, or other types of things that try and prevent inflation for the poor and redistribute money again. 
um, what we saw in 1968 to 82 um, is actually dramatic margin compression, right? Um, ironically, 68 to 82, GDP growth was above trend in real terms, not just nominally. Yes, we had a hot inflation, but in real terms, it was a demand push economy, very similar to what we're seeing now. And in real terms, GDP growth was much higher than it was the last 20, 20 years. You wouldn't think that, right? Because we all think, oh, the economy is strong. That means the market must be strong. Quite, quite the contrary. The economy has been very, uh, GDP growth has not been that strong in the last uh, 20, 30 years. Whereas during the 60s and 70s, it was very hot in GDP terms, but profits were much less, uh, much, much weaker during the 60s and 70s because margins were dramatically uh, lower. On top of that, equity markets had multiple contraction. Why? Well, when you can get 15% in the bond market, why go buy, go, why go buy stocks, right? Tina, the Tina effect everybody talked about for the last 20, 30 years is a real thing. But now that it's unwinding, you don't hear anybody talking about the importance of that. Uh, as there's a competition to stock market returns, guess what? There's more risk in the stock market. Why are people going to invest in the stock market when they can get five, six, seven percent? So this this competition, uh, you know, stock markets performed very poorly. By the way, 68 to 82, went nowhere, lost 70 percent of their value during that 14 year inflationary period, uh, despite very strong economic growth. So this talk about recessions being the issue here to this market is actually completely wrong. The fact that everybody's still playing the cyclical, oh, are we going into recession? Are we not? If we go into recession, the market's going to decline 20%. It doesn't work that way. Ironically, a very weak stagflationary environment is the worst thing because that means the Fed can't pivot. They can't uh, stimulate. They have to keep battling inflation while the economy is still weak. And that's essentially what we saw during the 60s and 70s. And it was very poor for corporations uh, and profitability, had massive margin compression. We're coming off record margins right now. Uh, that will mean revert if we continue to have an inflationary period. Uh, on top of that, we're sitting at very lofty, not just price to earnings, but price to sales. And uh, if, if uh, 60s and 70s are any indicator, we went from a 20, uh, 25 type PE uh, with massively uh, higher you know, margins to a Five PE at the market bottom in 1982 in valuations with much much worse uh, margins. So, um, you know, again, if if, if inflation inflation, it's not just about economic growth here. Again, everybody's playing this cyclical game. I want to emphasize this two dimensional: is the economy going to be strong or weak? And I'm trying to model what the bond market or the stock market are going to do under the circumstances, because that's all that has mattered for the last 40 years. We have been in a very Fed dominant, cyclically controlled environment now that their uh, price stability and GDP slash uh, employment mandates are in conflict. It's a very different world. So to put you on the spot, I said I wouldn't ask you about uh, predictions or anything like that. I'm, I'm just going to talk about sequencing and best <laughs> guesstimate only. Best guesstimate only because you know, the fiscal story and political stories generally takes, you know, at least you know, next election, maybe beyond that. So it will take a long time to play out. And that might be the, the GDP volatility story that we get where you have smaller, um, smaller expansions and more recessions. But before we get to that, do you think that we have the market event that you're talking about? And if we do, do you think it'd be a market event like the beginning of 2018, which is short, sharp correction, and even slightly bigger scale, 97, 98, and then on the way to a, a higher market, which we saw post 2018 and 97, 98. So the question I'm asking is, do you think we get a market-type washout, but it's a washout and quite short and sharp, 
followed by potentially a new rally, and then we get the political change that causes the big macro shock to maybe merge with a second version, a second wave of what you're talking about? I think that's very possible. Um, I think the reality, uh, you know, there's a couple of things that we're looking at that are that are hard, very hard to determine. Like we were saying, when is this going to end? And and in our view, you know, the macro is building, right? The macro issues are building, and uh, you know, you're likely to get some dislocation. Again, the vol, uh, the vol is very well supplied, though. And so the thing that the reason this time is different, I, if, if, it, if this time was very similar, it's a very similar uh, macro framework to the 60s and 70s. It, it, you know, vol supply is getting weaker. So on, in, that, in that regard, um, I, think, I think it lines up very much with the vol event. The problem is structured product issuance. You know, the, when we had 68 to 82, there were no options. There was very little structured product issuance. And that middle that I've, we led this whole conversation about, uh, you know, uh, of market microstructure kind of pinning the market, that those effects didn't exist during that time. So the part we're really kind of uh, battling and struggling with here in this new uh, environment is how long can that vol pinning be reflexive and pin this market in the context of these other effects? Um, and, and what we keep coming back to is, you know, ironically, in this time frame, people are moving more and more to structured products. This is that reverse Tina effect in play, right? People are able to say, okay, not only do I, am I going to go buy T-bills, but I can take the T-bills right now with derivatives and do a structured product where I have get 9 10% if I write 25% out of the money puts and 25% of the money calls um, or 20% of the money calls and, and structure a product that really kind of gives me a nice yield and, and, and ultimately uh, puts me into positions that are much less risky ultimately than owning the market. And all of this is vol compressing, right? The more and more structured product flow you have, the more and more banks are getting laden with vol, the more they're now laying that off on options markets. And this continues to pin the underneath underlying market. Um, so uh, reflexively, much like we saw in 17, this can go on for a while and reflexively cause it to last longer than, than you might think is, is possible. And these are new dynamics that are very powerful. Uh, and so the real question is, at what point do does that demand for structured products or the alternative and that vol compression dissipate or get so big that it's compressed vol so low that now we can lead to a bigger event? And that's something we're really thinking a lot about lately. Um, you know, again, if you just took that out of the market, I would say we are much further along down the road, both in terms of macro risks and liqu macro liquidity, uh, tied with also net positioning not being as well hedged uh, on the single... Uh, entity level, right? Much more vol selling, less hedging happening from institutions otherwise. But it is really this, um, ironically, this vol selling that's coming from, uh, really from the equity markets moving into alternatives that really I think is having this, uh, you know, medium term uh, structural pinning effect that I think uh, is way more important than people realize um, and something that could very well extend out um, these things um, longer than we expect. So to finish off, just very, very, very quickly. So it sounds like you would advocate that everybody here should have some form of protection, but that doesn't necessarily mean put protection. It might mean, as you said, call, call protection, as in switching out of cash or equities into calls. But people should be thinking of, we don't know when, we don't know where, but when it comes, it could be big. And when it comes, if you haven't got something on, you'll have missed it because everything else will have just blown up in your face. So you've kind of got to take some sort of, carry cost pain today to kind of do this unless you're maybe the pro who can deal with the you know the the, the market neutral strategies but otherwise you've got to take some pain yeah I, I want to be clear I, I think it's 
I don't think you have to be so simplistic that you take pain, right? I, I think, um, first of all, I think everybody's been taught in the last 40 years, because 40 years is forever, that 60-40 and being long markets is the only way to invest. Uh, everybody thinks passive investing is a technological advancement. We had indexing 150 years ago. Uh, passive investment isn't a new uh, invention. Uh, it, be it gained popularity because uh, starting in 82, the Fed started uh, secularly decreasing interest rates, which led to 60-40 working incredibly well. It's being stimulative for stocks and stimulative for bonds. Um, and so that was an incredible opportunity. If you do that, why why pay for you know uh, expertise and, and non-correlated alpha when you can just continue to buy the dip, uh, stay long. Uh, if it goes down, buy more. Um, you know, passive investing is what everybody has been taught works. Uh, you just keep buying. 68 to 82, you lost 70% of the value in your money in real terms if you did that. There's a reason passive investment wasn't very popular before um, 80, the 80s and 90s uh, when it started kicking off for the first time. Um, so our view is that, uh, you know, no, you, there's no, nothing that says you should just be buying stocks for the long run, uh, or at least over a decade-long time frame, especially when valuations, based on a lot of metrics, say that this is the positive return expectancy for stocks is not very good. The key is finding non-correlated ways to extract uh, a, a return. And there are lots of ways to do that. Much like paying a lawyer or a doctor, you're not going to operate on yourself. You're not going to go defend yourself in court. Uh, there is true deep expertise. Uh, it's not generally most wealth advisors, unfortunately, because most of them have been just trained in this simple 60-40 kind of model. Uh, it is actual deep expertise in understanding market structure. And there's lots of people out there who do it. There's a reason that the 70s and, uh, and early 80s were a great time for hedge funds and, and the advent of, of non-correlated kind of alpha uh, generation. Um, so we broadly believe that, that uh, and this is not just talking our book, you know, if you look at uh, endowments, endowments are 60% invested in alternatives, 60%. Your average individual investor is 6%. I think uh, the, the, what, what the average investor, the risk that average investors are taking and have been taught is the way to invest is actually, we believe broadly, um, way overweighted to, to beta and, and to beta risk. And particularly in a, a likely scenario where interest rates now start to go higher, uh, both equities and bonds are likely to not work um, in the next decade or so. So hopefully that gives you a little context. There's ways to make money um, outside of beta. And I think that's, you know, the premise that, oh, well, but, but how, do we, how do we continue to have our beta and, uh, and make our money? Well, it's just not going to work that way. And, and, and I think the premise of, oh, uh, you know, how do we uh, stay long is, is just simply incorrect on, on a, on a decade-long time frame. Jim, well, that was great. Very, uh, covered lots of ground, lots of energy, fantastic stuff. Um, I'll probably watch this a couple of times myself, actually. So uh, all great. Thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, and it was great to speak to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. Take care.